Chapter One, Part Two of The Memoirs of Barry Lyndon, Esquire, by William Makepeace Thackeray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One, Part Two. My uncle's family consisted of ten children, who, as is the custom in such large families, were divided into two camps or parties. The one siding with their mamma, the other taking the part of my uncle in all the numerous quarrels which arose between that gentleman and his lady. Mrs. Brady's faction was headed by Mick, the eldest son, who hated me so, and disliked his father for keeping him out of his property, while Ulick, the second brother, was his father's own boy. And in revenge, Master Mick was desperately afraid of him. I need not mention the girls' names. I had plague enough with them in afterlife, heaven knows, and one of them was the cause of all my early troubles. This was, though to be sure all her sisters denied it, the belle of the family, Miss Honoria Brady by name. She said she was only nineteen at the time, but I could read the fly-leaf in the family Bible as well as another. It was one of the three books which, with the backgammon board, formed my uncle's library, and know that she was born in the year thirty-seven, and christened by Dr. Swift, Dean of St. Patrick's, Dublin. Hence she was three-and-twenty years old at the time she and I were so much together. When I come to think about her now, I know she never could have been handsome, for her figure was rather of the fattest, and her mouth of the widest. She was freckled over like a partridge's egg, and her hair was the color of a certain vegetable which we eat with boiled beef, to use the mildest term. Often and often would my dear mother make these remarks concerning her, but I did not believe them then, and somehow had gotten to think Honoria an angelical being, far above all the other angels of her sex. And as we know very well that a lady who is skilled in dancing or singing never can perfect herself without a deal of study in private, and that the song or the minuet which is performed with such graceful ease in the assembly room has not been acquired without vast labor and perseverance in private, so is it with the dear creatures who are skilled in coquetting. Honoria, for instance, was always practicing, and she would take poor me to rehearse her accomplishment upon, or the exciseman when he came his rounds, or the steward, or the poor curate, or the young apothecary's lad from Brady's town, whom I recollect beating once for that very reason. If he's alive now, I make him my apologies. Poor fellow! as if it was his fault that he should be a victim to the wiles of one of the greatest coquettes, considering her obscure life and rustic breeding, in the world. If the truth must be told, and every word of this narrative of my life is of the most sacred veracity, my passion for Nora began in a very vulgar and unromantic way. I did not save her life. On the contrary, I once very nearly killed her, as you shall hear. I did not behold her by moonlight playing on the guitar, or rescue her from the hands of ruffians, as Alfonso does Lindemira in the novel. But one day after dinner, at Brady's town, in summer, going into the garden to pull gooseberries for my dessert, and thinking only of gooseberries, I pledge my honor, I came upon Miss Nora and one of her sisters with whom she was friends at the time, who were both engaged in the very same amusement. "'What's the Latin for gooseberry, Redmond?' says she. She was always 
poking her fun, as the Irish phrase it. I know the Latin for goose, says I. And what's that? cries Miss Mysie, as pert as a peacock. Bow to you, says I, for I never had a want of wit. And so we fell to work on the gooseberry bush, laughing and talking as happy as might be. In the course of our diversion, Nora managed to scratch her arm, and it bled, and she screamed, and it was mighty round and white, and I tied it up, and I believe was permitted to kiss her hand, and though it was as big and clumsy a hand as ever he saw, yet I thought the favor the most ravishing one that was ever conferred upon me, and went home in a rapture. I was much too simple a fellow to disguise any sentiment I chanced to feel in those days, and not one of the eight Castle Brady girls but was soon aware of my passion and joked and complimented Nora about her bachelor. The torments of jealousy the cruel coquette made me endure were horrible. Sometimes she would treat me as a child, sometimes as a man. She would always leave me if ever there came a stranger to the house. For after all, Redmond, she would say, you are but fifteen, and you haven't a guinea in the world. At which I would swear that I would become the greatest hero ever known out of Ireland, and vow that before I was twenty I would have money enough to purchase an entire estate six times as big as Castle Brady. All which vain promises, of course, I did not keep, but I make no doubt they influenced me in my very early life, and caused me to do those great actions for which I have been celebrated, and which shall be narrated presently in order. I must tell one of them, just that my dear young lady readers may know what sort of a fellow Redmond Barry was, and what a courage and undaunted passion he had. I question whether any of the Jenny Jessamines of the present day would do half as much in the face of danger. About this time, it must be premised, the United Kingdom was in a state of great excitement from the threat generally credited of a French invasion. The pretender was said to be in high favor at Versailles, a descent upon Ireland was especially looked to, and the noblemen and people of condition in that and all other parts of the kingdom showed their loyalty by raising regiments of horse and foot to resist the invaders. Brady's town sent a company to join the Kilwangan regiment, of which Master Mick was the captain, and we had a letter from Master Ulick at Trinity College stating that the university had also formed a regiment, in which he had the honor to be a corporal. How I envied them both, especially that odious Mick, as I saw him in his laced scarlet coat, with a ribbon in his hat, march off at the head of his men. He, the poor, spiritless creature, was a captain, and I nothing. I, who felt as much courage as the Duke of Cumberland himself, and felt, too, that a red jacket would mightily become me. My mother said I was too young to join the new regiment, but the fact was that it was she herself who was too poor, for the cost of a new uniform would have swallowed up half her year's income, and she would only have her boy appear in a way suitable to his birth, riding the finest of racers, dressed in the best of clothes, and keeping the genteelest of company. Well, then, the whole company was alive with war's alarms, the three kingdoms ringing with military music and every man of merit paying his devoir at the court of Bologna, whilst poor I was obliged to stay home in my fustian jacket and sigh for fame in secret. 
mr mick came to and fro from the regiment and brought numerous of his comrades with him their costume and swaggering airs filled me with grief and miss nora's unvarying attentions to them served to make me half wild no one however thought of attributing this sadness to the young lady's score but rather to my disappointment at not being allowed to join the military profession one of the officers of the fencibles gave a grand ball at kilwangan to which as a matter of course all the ladies of castle brady and a pretty ugly coachful they were were invited i knew to what tortures the odious little flirt of Enora would have put me with her eternal coquettes with the officers and refused for a long time to be one of the party to the ball but she had a way of conquering me against which all resistance of mine was in vain she vowed that riding in a coach always made her ill and how can i go to the ball said she unless you take me on daisy behind you on the pillion daisy was a good blood mare of my uncle's and to such a proposition i could not for my soul say no so we rode in safety to kilwangan and i felt myself as proud as any prince when she promised to dance a country dance with me when the dance was ended the ungrateful little flirt informed me that she had quite forgotten her engagement she had actually danced the set with an englishman i have endured torments in my life but none like that she tried to make up for her neglect but i would not some of the prettiest girls there offered to console me for i was the best dancer in the room i made one attempt but was too wretched to continue and so remained all night in a state of agony i would have played but i had no money only the gold piece that my mother bade me always keep in my purse as a gentleman should i did not care for drink or know of the dreadful comfort of it in those days but i thought of killing myself and nora and most certainly of making away with captain quinn at last and at morning the ball was over the rest of our ladies went off in the lumbering creaking old coach daisy was brought out and miss nora took her place behind me which i let her do without a word but we were not half a mile out of town when she began to try with her coaxing and blandishments to dissipate my ill-humour sure it's a bitter night redmond dear and you'll catch cold without a handkerchief to your neck to this sympathetic remark from the pillion the saddle made no reply did you and miss clancy have a pleasant evening redmond you were together i saw all night to this the saddle only replied by grinding his teeth and giving a lash to daisy oh mercy you'll make daisy rear and throw me you careless creature you and you know redmond i'm so timid the pillion had by this got her arm round the saddle's waist and perhaps gave it the gentlest squeeze in the world i hate miss clancy you know i do answers the saddle and i only danced with her because because the person with whom i intended to dance chose to be engaged the whole night sure there were my sisters said the pillion now laughing outright in the pride of her conscious superiority and for me my dear i had not been in the room five minutes before i was engaged for every single set were you obliged to dance five times with captain quinn said i and oh strange delicious charm of coquetry i do believe miss nora brady at twenty-three years of age felt a pang of delight in thinking that she had so much power over a guileless lad of fifteen of course she replied that she did not care a fig for captain quinn that he had danced prettily to be sure 
and was a pleasant rattle of a man, that he looked well in his regimentals, too, and if he chose to ask her to dance, how could she refuse him? But you refused me, Nora. Oh, I can dance with you any day, answered Miss Nora with a toss of her head, and to dance with your cousin at a ball looks as if you could find no other partner. Besides, said Nora, and this was a cruel, unkind cut which showed what a power she had over me and how mercilessly she used it. Besides, Redmond, Captain Quinn's a man and you're only a boy. If ever I meet him again, I roared out with an oath, you shall see who is the best man of the two. I'll fight him with a sword or with pistol, captain as he is. A man, indeed. I'll fight any man, every man. Didn't I stand up to Mick Brady when I was eleven years old? Didn't I beat Tom Sullivan, the great hulking brute who's nineteen? Didn't I do for the Scotch usher? Oh, Nora, it's cruel of you to sneer at me so. But Nora was in the sneering mood that night, and pursued her sarcasms. She pointed out that Captain Quinn was already known as a valiant soldier, famous as a man of fashion in London, and that it was mighty well of Redmond to talk and boast of beating ushers and farmers' boys, but to fight an Englishman was a very different matter. Then she fell to talk of the invasion, and of military matters in general, and of King Frederick, who was called in those days the Protestant hero, of Monsieur Toureau and his fleet, of Monsieur Conflant and his squadron, of Minorca, how it was attacked and where it was. We both agreed it must be in America, and hoped the French might be soundly beaten there. I sighed after a while, for I was beginning to melt, and said how much I longed to be a soldier, on which Nora recurred to her infallible, Ah, oh, now would you leave me then? But sure, you're not big enough for anything more than a little drummer to which I replied by swearing that a soldier I would be, and a general, too. As we were chatting in this silly way, we came to a place that has ever since gone by the name of Redmond's Leap Bridge. It was an old high bridge, over a stream sufficiently deep and rocky. And as the mare Daisy with her double load was crossing this bridge, Miss Nora, giving loose to her imagination and still harping on the military theme, I would lay a wager that she was thinking of Captain Quinn. Miss Nora said, Suppose now, Redmond, you, who are such a hero, was passing over the bridge, and the enemy on the other side. I'd draw my sword and cut my way through them. What with me on the pillion? Would you kill poor me? This young lady was perpetually speaking of poor me. Well, then I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd jump Daisy into the river and swim you both across where no enemy could follow us. Jump twenty feet. You wouldn't dare to do any such thing on Daisy. There's the captain's horse, Black George. I've heard say that Captain Quinn... She never finished the word, for, maddened by the continual recurrence of that odious monosyllable, I shouted to her to hold tight by my waist and, giving Daisy the spur, in a minute sprang with Nora over the parapet into the deep water below. I don't know why now, whether it was I wanted to drown myself and Nora, or to perform an act that even Captain Quinn should crane at, or whether I fancied that the enemy actually was in front of us, I can't tell now, but over I went. The horse sank over his head. The girl screamed as she sank, and screamed as she rose, and I landed her half-fainting on the shore. 
where we were soon found by my uncle's people who returned on hearing the screams. I went home and was ill speedily of a fever which kept me to my bed for six weeks, and I quitted my couch prodigiously increased in stature, and at the same time still more violently in love than I had been even before. At the commencement of my illness Miss Nora had been pretty constant in her attendance at my bedside, forgetting for the sake of me the quarrel between my mother and her family which my good mother was likewise pleased in the most christian manner to forget and let me tell you it was no small mark of goodness in a woman of her haughty disposition who as a rule never forgave anybody for my sake to give up her hostility to miss brady and to receive her kindly for like a mad boy as i was it was nora i was always raving about and asking for i would only accept medicines from her hand and would look rudely and sulkily upon the good mother, who loved me better than anything else in the world, and gave up even her favorite habits, the proper and becoming jealousies, to make me happy. As I got well, I saw that Nora's visits became daily more rare. "'Why doesn't she come?' I would say peevishly a dozen times in the day, in reply to which query Mrs. Berry would be obliged to make the best excuses she could find such as that Nora had sprained her ankle, or that they had quarrelled together, or some other answer to soothe me. And many a time has the good soul left me to go and break her heart in her own room alone, and come back with a smiling face, so that I should know nothing of her mortification. Nor, indeed, did I take much pains to ascertain it. Nor should I, I fear, have been very much touched, even if I had discovered it, for the commencement of manhood, I think, is the period of our extremest selfishness. We get such a desire, then, to take wing and leave the parent nest, that no tears, entreaties, or feelings of affection will counterbalance this overpowering longing after independence. She must have been very sad, that poor mother of mine. Heaven be good to her, at that period of my life and has often told me since what a pang of the heart it was to her to see all her care and affection of years forgotten by me in a minute, and for the sake of a little heartless jilt who was only playing with me while she could get no better suitor. For the fact is that during the last four weeks of my illness no other than Captain Quinn was staying at Castle Brady and making love to Miss Nora in form. My mother did not dare to break this news to me, and you may be sure that Nora herself kept it a secret. It was only by chance that I discovered it. Shall I tell you how? The minx had been to see me one day, as I sat up in my bed, convalescent. She was in such high spirits and so gracious and kind to me that my heart poured over with joy and gladness and I had even for my poor mother a kind word and a kiss that morning. I felt myself so well that I ate up a whole chicken, and promised to my uncle, who had come to see me to be ready against partridge shooting, to accompany him, as my custom was. The next day but one was a Saturday, and I had a project for that day which I determined to realize in spite of all the doctor's and my mother's injunctions, which were that I was on no account to leave the house, for the fresh air would be the death of me. Well, I lay wondrous quiet composing a copy of verses, the first I ever made in my life, and I give them here, spelt as I spelt them in those days when I knew no better. 
and although they are not so polished and elegant as ardelia ease a lovesick swain and when sol bedecks the daisied mead and other lyrical effusions of mine which obtained me so much reputation in after-life i still think them pretty good for a humble lad of fifteen the rose of flora sent by a young gentleman of quality to miss brady of castle brady on brady's tower there grows a flower it is the loveliest flower that blows at castle brady there lives a lady and how i love her no one knows her name is nora and the goddess flora presents her with this blooming rose o oh, lady nora says the goddess flora i've many a rich and bright parterre in brady's towers there's seven more flowers but you're the fairest lady there not all the county nor ireland's bounty can produce a treasure that's half so fair what cheek is redder sure roses fed her her hair is marigolds and her eye of blue beneath her eyelid is like the violet that darkly glistens with gentle dew the lily's nature is not surely whiter than nora's neck is and her arms too come gentle nora says the goddess flora my dearest creature take my advice there is a poet full well you know it who spends his lifetime in heavy sighs young redmond barry tis him you'll marry if rhyme and raisin you'll choose likewise on sunday no sooner was my mother gone to church than i summoned phil the valet and insisted upon his producing my best suit in which i arrayed myself although i found that i had shot up so in my illness that the old dress was woefully too small for me and with my notable copy of verses in my hand ran down towards castle brady bent upon beholding my beauty the air was so fresh and bright and the birds sang so loud amidst the garden trees that i felt more elated than i had been for months before and sprang down the avenue my uncle had cut down every stick of the trees by the way as brisk as a young fawn my heart began to thump as i mounted the grass-grown steps of the terrace and passed in by the rickety hall door the master and mistress were at church mr screw the butler told me after giving a start back at seeing my altered appearance and gaunt lean figure and so were six of the young ladies was miss nora one i asked no miss nora was not one said mr screw assuming a very puzzled and yet knowing look where was she to this question he answered or rather made believe to answer with usual irish ingenuity and left me to settle whether she was gone to kilwangan on the pillion behind her brother or whether she and her sister had gone for a walk or whether she was ill in her room and while i was settling this query mr screw left me abruptly i rushed away to the back court where the castle brady stables stand and there i found a dragoon whistling the roast beef of old england as he cleaned down a cavalry horse whose horse fellow is that cried i feller indeed replied the englishman the horse belongs to my captain and he's a better feller nor you any day 
I did not stop to break his bones, as I would on another occasion, for a horrible suspicion had come across me, and I made for the garden as quickly as I could. I knew somehow what I should see there. I saw Captain Quinn and Nora pacing the alley together. Her arm was under his, and the scoundrel was fondling and squeezing the hand which lay closely nestling against his odious waistcoat. Some distance beyond them was Captain Fagan of the Kilwangan Regiment, who was paying court to Nora's sister, Mysie. I'm not afraid of any man or ghost, but as I saw that sight, my knees fell a-trembling violently under me, and such a sickness came over me that I was fain to sink down on the grass by a tree against which I leaned, and lost almost all consciousness for a minute or two. Then I gathered myself up, and, advancing towards the couple on the walk, loosened the blade of the little silver-hilted hanger I always wore in its scabbard for I was resolved to pass it through the bodies of the delinquents and split them like two pigeons. I don't tell what feelings else besides those of rage were passing through my mind, what bitter blank disappointment, what mad wild despair, what a sensation as if the whole world was tumbling from under me. I make no doubt that my reader hath been jilted by the ladies many times, and so bid him recall his own sensations when the shock first fell upon him. No, Noralia, said the captain, for it was the fashion of those times for lovers to call themselves by the most romantic names out of novels. Except for you and four others, I vow before all the gods my heart has never felt the soft flame. Ah, you men, you men, Eugenio, said she. The beast's name was John. Your passion is not equal to ours. We are like, like some plant I've read of, we bear but one flower, and then we die. Do you mean you've never felt an inclination for another? said Captain Quinn. Never, my Eugenio, but for thee. How can you ask a blushing nymph such a question? Darling Noralia, said he, raising her hand to his lips. I had a knot of cherry-colored ribbons, which she had given me out of her breast and which, somehow, I always wore upon me. I pulled these out of my bosom and flung them in Captain Quinn's face, and rushed out with my little sword drawn, shrieking, She's a liar! She's a liar, Captain Quinn! Draw, sir, and defend yourself if you are a man! And with these words I leapt at the monster and collared him, while Nora made the air echo with their screams, at the sound of which the other captain and Mysie hastened up. Although I sprang up like a weed in my illness, and was now nearly attained at my full growth of six feet, yet I was but a laugh by the side of the enormous English captain, who had calves and shoulders, such as no chairman at Bath ever boasted. He turned very red, and then exceedingly pale at my attack upon him, and slipped back and clutched at his sword, when Nora, in an agony of terror, flung herself round him, screaming, Eugenio, Captain Quinn, for heaven's sake, spare the child. He is but an infant. And ought to be whipped for his impudence, said the captain. But never fear, Miss Brady, I shall not touch him. Your favorite is safe from me. So saying, he stooped down and picked up the bunch of ribbons which had fallen at Nora's feet, and handing it to her, said in a sarcastic tone, when ladies make presents to gentlemen, it is time for other gentlemen to retire. 
good heavens quinn cried the girl he is but a boy i am a man roared i and will prove it and don't signify any more than my parrot or lapdog mayn't i give a bit of ribbon to my own cousin you're perfectly welcome miss continued the captain as many yards as you like monster exclaimed the dear girl your father was a tailor and you're always thinking of the shop but i'll have my revenge i will ready will you see me insulted indeed miss nora says i i intend to have his blood as sure as my name's redmond i'll send for the usher to cane you little boy said the captain regaining his self-possession but as for you miss i have the honour to wish you a good day he took off his hat with much ceremony made a low conge and was just walking off when mick my cousin came up whose ear had likewise been caught by the scream hoity-toity jack quinn what's the matter here says mick nora in tears redmond's ghost here with his sword drawn and you making a bow i'll tell you what it is mr brady said the englishman i've had enough of miss nora here and your irish ways i ain't used to em sir well well what is it said mick good-humouredly for he owed quinn a great deal of money as it turned out we'll make you used to our ways or adopt english ones it's not the english way for ladies to have two lovers the hanglish way as the captain called it and so mr brady i'll thank you to pay me the sum you owe me and i'll resign all claims to this young lady if she has a fancy for schoolboys let her take em sir pooh pooh quinn you're joking said mick i never was more in earnest replied the other by heaven then look to yourself shouted mick infamous seducer infernal deceiver you come and wind your toils round this suffering angel here you win her heart and leave her and fancy her brother won't defend her draw this minute you slave and let me cut the wicked heart out of your body this is regular assassination said quinn starting back there's two on em at me at once fagin you won't let him murder me faith said captain fagin who seemed mightily amused you may settle your own quarrel captain quinn and coming over to me whispered at him again you little fellow as long as captain quinn withdraws his claim said i i of course do not interfere i do sir i do said quinn more and more flustered then defend yourself like a man curse you cried mick again mysie leave this poor victim away redmond and fagin will see fair play between us well now i don't give, give me time I, i'm puzzled I, I i don't know which way to look like the donkey betwixt the two bundles of hay said mr fagin dryly and there's pretty pickings on either side End of chapter 1, part 2